0: We start in uh, chapter 16 of Judges this morning, and it's going to take us a couple weeks to get through chapter 16, which is the end of the account of Samson. So we're going to be in 16, verses 1 through 17 this morning. That's the plan. I wanted to go a little bit further, but I had to revamp it as it just got longer and longer and longer. And I remembered the concept of mercy, so I decided to not go as long as I originally planned. And the title for this morning's sermon is Sin Stalks Samson. Sin Stalks Samson. What if I told you that every day you are being hunted? That's a disturbing thought. I think. As intelligent beings, though, we're able to conceptualize possibilities. Even though they may not be probabilities, we can, we can imagine being in scenarios that, even though not outlandish fiction that are within the realm of reality, um, still are disturbing in things that we don't encounter often, in fact, maybe encounter rarely, or take notice of it rarely. Thus the phrase that everyone's heard, truth is stranger than fiction, and its updated version of you can't make this stuff up. That was a phrase that I dreaded to hear from my subordinates when I was a chief, it was one of three fa- phrases that they would, they would invariably utter when they walked in the doorway to my office. I always kept the door open to invite people in, come in and talk to me about whatever they wanted to or needed to talk about. Unfortunately, it was never about you know the ball game and how the weather is and you know, do I want a cup of coffee. It always started off with either you can't make this stuff up, chief. Oh, great. Or just so you know, chief. Which means I'm passing the ball to you because I don't want this responsibility. Or my favorite on the east coast was not for nuttin', chief. <laughs> and I, would, I asked this puzzled lieutenant one day. I decided to have fun with him. What sort of knot are you talking about, lieutenant? Is it a bowline? Is it a clove hitch? Is it a square knot? And he looked puzzled. And I said, and exactly what is a nutton?" I know that the city we're in, it's known as the city the nutmeg city, does it have something to do with the nutmeg trees here? Is it is it a, a piece of the tree? And why? what's the exchange rate for a knot for a nutton? Is it one-on-one? Has it always been on one-on-one? And he looked at me and he just said, I, 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 I don't know, chief. I, I, I don't know. But that was a, a phrase that I just had fun with them. But you can't make this stuff up, can you? Well, this is what I think we're going to see as we get into the, the part of chapter 16 we're going to look at. Um, certainly it could be made up, but, it's, but the interesting, the fascinating thing is it's not made up. It, seems, it's, it would seem almost to be ribald humor um, that is just written to uh, like Aesop's fable or some, something like that. But it's a true account, but there's, 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 there's truth in it and there's warnings in it that we need to look at. Think of sin as a prey animal. I mean a predator, not a religiously inclined animal that puts its fuzzy paws together in an attitude of prayer, but, but, but something that is stalking another. This is called a zoomorphism. And a zoomorphism of sin may be a bit of a stretch for us because sin broadly across cultures is thought of basically as a violation of customs or laws that a society adheres to. Um, And in the Old Testament, we see sin defined primarily as actions by human beings against the law of God. Actions such as murder, adultery. Then in the New Testament, this idea of sin gets expanded upon where it's the thoughts of human beings included in the idea of sin that lead to these actions that are against the, the laws of God. But in both cases, sin is a component of human behavior. And this, this is the truth. I mean, the Bible reveals this to us, that we are fallen creatures. We are sinners And that we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. Interestingly, however, though, the Bible at times personifies sin. It depicts sin metaphorically, we might say, in the guise of a person. The book of Proverbs is an example. Proverbs chapter 9, we see the depiction of Lady Folly. And then earlier in that book, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we read about the adulteress, or literally, the foreign woman. Now, both of these connect to our main text today. We also see God warning Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, who's upset because his His offering has been rejected. God says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So this Hebrew word that we translate as crouch is connected to an even older term from the Akkadian language which is like the oldest Semitic language that we know of in the ancient Near East and it was the, the, the universal language so to speak of that region um, in those times and Hebrew draws a lot from it but this word uh, in Akkadian is a word for a specific demon an evil being in 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 our understanding of what's been revealed to us in the uh in the scriptures um, not always in other cultures or demons looked at as always evil, but this demon was one that crouched in doorways, waiting to do whatever it was wanting to do to a human that would exit through that doorway. So we see in, in some Bible translations that um, Genesis 4 uh, verse 7b is even, takes us into account when it translates it and translates it as sin is a demon crouching at the door. The narrative is personifying sin as a demonic spirit ready to pounce on Cain Once he opens the door of opportunity, one might say. Now, demonic entities are the personification of sin because they lack any form of, of righteousness. They exist by and for the reason of rebelling against God. And this personification that we see in Genesis 4 is corresponding with what we read in the previous chapter of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, the well-known Proto-Evangelium, which it seems like we're talking about a lot lately here at Sovereign Grace in, in all of our services. Proto-Evangelium, just as a reminder, is a, a Latin term, and it means the, um, basically the earliest good news. And in this, the Proto-Evangelium, the, 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 the seed of the woman is going to do battle with the seed of the serpent. So these imageries that we've looked at uh, briefly here communicate the message that sin can be stirred up by wrong choices. So there is a, there is a human responsibility connected to sin. And I say that because you may say, well, well of course. I say that because of my next Um, thought that I want to share with you is the ancient Israelite understanding that we see in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, is that mankind in the world entered into a fallen state because of not only human rebellion, but angelic rebellion also. The angelic coming first and these spiritual rebels then instigating and spurring on the human rebels who readily join in in the rebellion. So this results in a rebellion in both spheres of God's dominion, both earthly and heaven, heavenly. This, is, this, I would say, is an important concept for us to grasp and to hold on to because of the culture that we're in being a materialistic and naturalistic culture that we are steeped in, whether we like it or not, our modern conceptualization minimizes or disregards the spiritual component of the Bible. And it's very important that we, that we understand this component and that we, that we grasp onto it again. So we regard sin as solely a description of human behavior, which, which it is don't misunderstand me, um, but also the, the ancient Israelite view uh, of the spiritual forces being involved in it does not in any way dismiss human responsibility as a component of sin. And that's an important point because I've heard people dismiss this ancient viewpoint of the Israelites as, well, they're just trying to get out from, you know, the responsibility. They don't want to be held responsible for what they've done. They just, it's the old, uh, some of you are old enough to remember um, the comedian Flip Wilson in the 70s and his uh, TV show where one of his characters was always saying, the devil made me do it. You can get into a predicament, the devil made me do it. That's not what we're talking about here. Yes, the devil is involved, and we're going to see that. That's an important um, part of what we 're going to be talking about today, but there 's dual roles there 's dual responsibility here we 're involved in a in a spiritual battle that 's fought in both the material realm that we are in and the spiritual realm, kind of like par- in parallel uh, with with one another and This may not always be clear, especially in the old testament these god 's works in his revelation in a progressive manner. And we see some concepts in the Old Testament which aren't exactly clear. For example, um, the afterlife, heaven and hell, uh, judgment, um, the the person of Satan. Uh, these things are kind of vague, and they may shift a little bit uh, where it seems like the understanding is this, then that, And then God reveals more as time goes on. Then we see these things clarified in our New Testament. That's why the the scriptures must be joined together. The Old Testament and the New Testament. They don't work well. They're not clear if they're separated one from the other. So our task then is to connect all of God's inspired word in a way that is both consistent and cohesive. It's got to make sense between itself internally and then it has to make sense to us we have to make sense of it externally that's very important so as we consider our sin and our spiritual state we then can see this next episode in Samson's account and how sin stalks Samson and traps him Again, not alleviating any of Samson's responsibility. But we need to see beyond the veil, so to speak. And we need to learn this very important lesson in Scripture. Because as Paul says, so that we not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. That's 2 Corinthians 2.11 We are not ignorant of his designs. Why? Because God reveals those to us in the Bible. That's why we preach it. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. In a sense, with what we're we're talking about today, we can look at it as a survival manual, spiritual survival manual and physical survival manual with what we're going to see transpire. So before we get into our main text in chapter 16, it's going to be helpful to connect it with what seems to have transpired uh, previously. Because when we read chapter 15 into chapter 16, it can look like boom, boom, boom. These things are just happening one after another. And as you know, you've heard before from the pulpit here, um, that's the, there's a telescoping and a compressing that goes on in God's word being ancient literature, and it's difficult at times for us to see the time intervals between things. So last week with chapter 15, we ended with the battle of Jawbone Hill, and Samson calling on Yahweh to deliver him afterwards, which God did by opening up the rock to bring water to him, water Samson so desperately needed, he thought he was going to perish, and as a result. Samson's thankful, and he renames Jawbone Hill the spring of the caller, as he called out to the Lord. So the last verse of that chapter, 15, tells us, verse 20, And he, Samson, judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. So this this is a transitional phrase. It bridges the time between these two accounts. Reading it, I think, from our modern viewpoint, it could just look like, well, that's an aside. It's going to go one thing into another. It just happens to say oddly. But, you know, so some things in the Bible just read oddly, don't they? I mean, we've all thought that. It's like, I don't know why it's written that way. Well, you know, this is what's going on here: is We're being told that um, the Battle of Jawbone Hill uh, happens. Then there's a period of 20 years during which Samson judges Israel. Now, interestingly, this is the book of Judges, right? Samson is the last judge in the book. He's a major judge. There's there's four chapters on Samson. But this is the very first time that we hear the term judge and judging applied to Samson. Samson, as we talked about last week, obviously underwent a spiritual transformation on Jawbone Hill, the spring of the collar. He realized his calling. He realized what he was to do, that he was to deliver, protect the people of Israel from their oppressors. That's the the, the term, that's the, the role that God had given him. And he does this for 20 years. So grammatically what we should see in here in in the Hebrews, it it means that the next incident, there's like 20 years, and then chapter 16 happens. So, and I point this out because when we read the Bible with our modern eyes, it looks like, doesn't it, that Samson goes from one set of antics to another. It's like, man, this guy just doesn't slow down. He doesn't learn his lesson. So a 20-year period between you know, great sins, it doesn't doesn't excuse the sin, does it? No, it doesn't alleviate it, but it kind of makes it more understandable, I think, to us. It's like, okay, so you know, he didn't just do this and then do, do this. So there's this 20-year period where apparently, because nothing is reported, Samson is doing pretty good. He, there's there's no major um, encounters r- resulting in, in massive bloodshed, Um, from the Philistine side that goes on and there are no um, Samson-esque antics where he's running off doing something he shouldn't do. Everything seems to be going pretty good. And then we get to the events of chapter 16 and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to start out. We read, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of him. Hebron, point number one, Satan lays snares for us. Satan lays snares for us. This is evident in Paul's well-known words of Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. These schemes, these snares, these treacheries of Satan are laid in such a way that we are normally, humanly, unaware of them. And these schemes or wiles, as they're called, depending on your translation, they signify an ambush. It signifies military strategy here, whereby the enemy attacks one. Unawares, and snares are best laid where. Think of, you know, if you've seen documentaries or movies of the in the olden days or what have you about trappers, where would they put their snares, their traps for the um, for the game that they were hunting? They'd put them where they knew the game was going to go. They'd put them on game trails. They'd put them in watering holes. So so Satan is going to lay these traps for you because you are his prey in places where he's pretty certain you're going to go or he's going to lure you to those places. And the best laid snares are what? The ones that you can't see, right? If a, if a trap is laid right out in the middle of a game trail, you know, the the game... They're not going to fall for it. They're they're not dumb. God has given all of his creatures levels of intelligence necessary for them to live in the manner that God has decreed they shall live and to to carry out their their role. So here we see Samson leaving the, the Israelite territory, and he goes to the Philistine territory, to Gaza. And Gaza is one of the five major... Philistine cities that make up what's called their Pentopolis. They have five major metropolitan cities. Now, the text doesn't tell us why Samson went to Gaza, but I can tell you this. The text does tell us it was not for the purpose of visiting this prostitute. We can tell that because there's this phrase, and there he saw a prostitute. It's kind of incidental. It's like, He goes there for one reason, and whoop, he's lured off by something that wasn't part of his intended purpose. So this city, Gaza, is the southernmost of these five major cities the Philistines had. Southernmost. We see this repeat of what we've seen with Samson's behavior. There's a metaphorical um, nuance to it he moves each time in one of these incidents he gets himself involved in. He moves south. He moves downward. He moves away from, literally, away from Israelite territory. But metaphorically, he also moves away from going down. He moves away from his Nazarite vow and from his service that he's been dedicated to since before he was born, which is to rescue, deliver the people of Israel, and to serve the Lord God. Chapter 14, the beginning, we see Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Next chapter, chapter 15, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went down to visit his wife, this woman of Timnah, with a young goat. Samson seems to be inexorably drawn to the cities of the enemy. And then once in the foreign territory, he sees a foreign woman that he cannot resist. He's established a pattern here, hasn't he? Samson goes into the house of the foreign woman down here in Gaza and spends the night but his movements are being watched. His whereabouts and what he's doing is reported to the Gaza authorities. Now the debacle that they suffered at Jawbone Hill has taught the Philistines the need for caution. So unlike what happened in Lehi on the Jawbone Hill, there's no shouting or headlong rush you know, to try and take Samson down. Instead, there's careful planning, and they set a double trap. They set an inner perimeter around the house of this foreign woman. And then an outer perimeter at the city gate. This is a good, solid, tactical plan. It sounds like a SWAT operation to, to me, you know, from, from experience. You, know, you got your really, you know, your, your frontline guys really close in, and then you've got the newer guys that aren't as experienced, you know, on the, on the outside. And, and if he breaks through your first line, you're going to get him with your second line. He shouldn't, he shouldn't get away from you. His fearsome reputation after slaying an entire Philistine military unit with the jawbone of a donkey is good reason not to try and take him down in the dark, cramped quarters of this prostitute. You know, you can't go in there and flip on an electric switch. Unless there's a lamp burning, you're not going to have any light. They didn't have tactical flashlights attached to their swords or their spears. They'd be operating in the dark, and they'd most likely, you know, wound and kill each other as Samson is wounding and killing them. So they're using their heads here. So they wait. They wait until morning. Then, when he leaves probably sleepy, considering they think he's going to be up all night, and they hope he's in a weakened physical state, they'll spring the trap shut on him. The Philistines are using Samson's weakness for their women against him. This is the the snare that they are making use of for him. And undoubtedly, this, this delights them to no end to do this. So Samson, the champion of the Israelites, is being set up to be murdered, quite honestly. And to be clear, there's nothing in the text that suggests that human collusion is involved in drawing Samson to Gaza and to this prostitute's house so that he can be ambushed when he leaves. This is not like a plan, a ploy that's been set in motion. But rest assured, that is exactly what is going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Evil spiritual forces attempt to manipulate events and choices made by humans, often unwittingly, I would say, to their advantage. I mean, most of us aren't going to go someplace or do something if we know that it's gonna, it is going to result in something bad happening to us. That's Samson, I don't know. We, you know. It's hard to figure this guy sometimes. I mean, he might just, it may make it more thrilling for him because he just gets to you know, visit this woman and also take out a bunch of Philistine soldiers at the same time. Who knows? Why, though, would spiritual forces do this? What is it to their advantage in this case here? specifically. Well, the serpent, think back to Genesis 3.15, is desperately trying to stop something from happening in history, right? Trying to prevent the birth of the seed of the woman, the skull crusher, the one who is going to come and defeat the serpent and his seed. And the seed, the serpent knows, is coming through the people of Israel. These are God's people, But the serpent doesn't know when this is going to happen. And he doesn't know which child will be the one. So the best way to do this is to destroy all of God's people. Starting with the guy at the top. At this time, the champion of Israel. We'll start at the top, we work our way down, we wipe them all out. How often do we see this in the Old Testament? The attempt to destroy the Israelites. And we've seen it in history, haven't we? In modern history as a matter of fact. But from our vantage point, we're looking back in history, right? We know the seed, the one, has come. And he has begun his task, his skull-crushing task, which is ongoing, even as we live on the earth in this time. And we are awaiting his return, aren't we? And his return signals a consummation of The skull crushing. So now, in this time, which we could very in a very old-fashioned way call the years of our Lord, as used to be common. Everything after the birth of our Savior is the year of our Lord. Now Satan acts out of pure vengeance. He just wants to destroy as many of the human image bearers of God as possible. Does he believe he's going to escape judgment? I don't think Satan is is that insane. I think he knows. He knows that God's will prevails, but he wants to destroy as many. It's like misery loves company, right? People that are in a bad fix, a bad place in their life, how often do they want to invite others to accompany them? Whether they're, they're using substances they shouldn't, they're going to places they shouldn't, they're doing harmful things, and boy, is it fun to invite others to go along on this merry ride to doomsday. So, all this being said is to point out that Satan is still on the offensive. It's not like this only applied then, before the birth of Christ, and doesn't really apply now. <clears throat> and how joyful, if, if, that, if that emotion is even conceivable and possible in the demonic realm... Would it be for demonic forces to take down one of God's adopted children? One who has been transformed into a son of God to take the place of these rebels who were once sons of God and now are cast down and now are seeds of Satan. So we must still be on the guard. Back to Satan here. He foils his would-be murderers by living, leaving in the middle of the night. He doesn't wait till morning. He gets up and he's gone. Maybe he's heard something. Maybe he's heard a noise. Maybe he, this was his plan all along. Who knows? We're not told. But he knows. Somehow he knows they're trying to trap him, and he needs to get out of Gaza. And boy, does he get out of Gaza! He just doesn't go through the city gates. He busts through them, and takes the gates with him. Now, the interesting thing about these ancient gates, we've seen depictions of them. There's been recreations of them. They found them archaeologically. The Philistine gates were quite an elaborate affair. They were often huge, and there was six guard rooms that you would pass before you got to the gate. There There was one on each side, and there was a set of three, usually. So Samson goes right through where all these guards are. Now, lest we think that well, it's the it's the graveyard shift, it's it's morning watch, they're not paying any attention. Well, that's when the gates were guarded, right? That's the whole point in gates is you close them at night because that's when the attacks come. That's when the danger is. So there is a good guard force on duty. But the text doesn't even mention them. They are so irrelevant to Samson's actions that he busts through the gates and he takes the doors, the posts, and the bar with him as he goes through. And he carries the city gate away on his shoulders. So Samson leaves Gaza and its inhabitants breached, broken, and humiliated. And he carries the gates to Hebron. Hebron is where later David will be anointed king. And it serves as the kingdom of uh, Israel, the United Kingdom, for seven years. It's a leading city in the tribal allotment of Judah. It, it's, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a big place. It's an important place. It's 40 miles from Gaza. And it's uphill all the way. I know that sounds like a dad's story. I mean, I've always told my kids about everything that was uphill, going both directions, in the snow, you know, 100-degree summer heat. Um, but, <laughs> but this is for reals. I mean, you can look on a map. You can look at a topographical map. So Samson's carrying this stuff on his shoulders 40 miles uphill. He gets to the last ridgeline before Hebron, and he plants the gates of Gaza there. So all the people of Israel could look out and see them. It's a war trophy. Samson's announcing that he's opened a new round of conflict with the Philistines. What happened last time? How did that open? It opened when the people of Judah tied him up and delivered him over. He's declaring this time... <laughs> No, you're not, you, there's going to be no binding of, of Samson. You know, I'm going to take these, these dudes on, and here is the evidence. So you can imagine the Israelites looking at these gates, and they're thinking, well, he's done it. Because remember, the Israelites, they're happy in bondage. You know, they chewed him out for, you know, for rising up and, and causing problems against their over overlords, overlords before But now he's telling them there's not going to be peace. They realize that. There's no peace with this guy around. But he intends to fight the Philistines alone. For Samson, unlike the other judges, has never been a leader of men, which is highly unusual. I mean, that's the role of the judge, to call out the other warriors of Israel to fight against the external oppressors. But Samson, he takes it all on his own shoulders. Pun not intended, I don't think. But anyway, um, he is self sufficient. And this is a problem. But what is noticeable in this scene in Gaza is that the absence of someone who is not there that is usually there the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Lord is not mentioned here with such a tremendous show of strength one would expect to see that familiar phrase that we've seen three times before then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him so this shows us that we are back to the self sustaining Samson and his physical abilities are going to be a trap to him. He thinks that he is in need of no one not the other Israelite men and not the Lord. He's going to do it all. This brings us to the second point I want to make. Point number two. Human self-sufficiency is one of the schemes of Satan. Human self-sufficiency is one of the schemes of Satan. Satan is pleased when we forget or we forego the Lord's assistance. He's very happy when we say we can do it ourselves. If we believe that strange American saying, the Lord helps those who help themselves... Lone prey are easy pickings for a predator. We are called, metaphorically, the sheep of the Lord. There's a reason for that. As sheep, although that used to grate on me as a a young Christian guy. You know, I'm not a sheep. You know, I can take care of myself. I mean, I was trained to take care. I was trained to take control of every single situation I entered into. I learned. I gained wisdom as I experienced life. And I realized, yes, I need to be amongst the sheep. Think of the sheep. Sheep are, are herd animals. They, they gather in flocks. We need to be in amongst the flock. That is, the, the, the church. And we need to be under the watchful eye of a shepherd. Shepherds, those those... With a little s, those are your pastors. It's our job, it's our calling, it's our blessing to watch out for you. And of course, we're under the Good Shepherd, capital G, capital S, all of us. No one should journey through hostile territory, which is the world alone. You're going to end up, at the very least, Wounded and terrorized, if not killed. All of these literary phrases and these repetitions that we see from Genesis to Revelation are pointing at this, the need for us to be together, to be under the good shepherd's watchful eye, to follow his direction, to hear his voice as he calls us, so we know what pasture to move to. Not to go traipsing off, like, like we've talked about before, to foreign pastors, pastures, and pastors, foreign pastors. <laughs> yeah, you're pastor, pastors. Foreign pastures, where there's poisonous weeds, and where there's wolves stalking you. Back to Judges now. Verses 4 through 6. Follow along with me. After this, he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So just as a side here. This probably refers to five guys. There's five Philistine cities, major cities. There's a lord over each of them. So we're talking about five times 1,100 pieces of silver. This is an awful lot of money, no matter the exchange rate. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Okay, so the valley of Sorek here is the border between Philistine and Israelite territory. And the nearest Philistine settlement to this valley is Timra, where Samson set eyes on his short-lived wife. So he's in the same vicinity. And for the third time, we see Samson irresistibly drawn to a Philistine woman. Except here... There are two notable exceptions that I want to point out to you. Maybe you've seen it, but if you haven't, they're important. For the first time, love is mentioned. Not just physical attraction or desire, but love. And it doesn't mean anything other than love. It means love. But it's a one-sided love. He loved a woman. It doesn't say anything about her loving him back. She did not love him back. Now, as I go through this and I point this, this, all of these things out, I want to clarify right up front so there's no misunderstanding. This could very easily happen if we switched the male and female role in here. Okay, so I'm not picking on women as being bad. Women, there are bad guys that could be just like, they could be a male Delilah and do the same thing to you that happened to Samson. So I want you to understand that. Don't think Pastor Ken doesn't like women. He's a misogynist or anything of that. This is the text the Lord has given us, and he's given it to us for a certain reason, one of which is this really happened. It's not just made up because the, the humans that wrote it you know, thousands and thousands of years ago you know, had, had a grind against women. No. So, that out of the way. So the first thing, remember, love is going on here. Samson's story, if you think about it, it centers around women, doesn't it? His mother, his wife, the prostitute in Gaza, and a mistress. All of them are unnamed until now, until the mistress. We're told her name, Delilah. Delilah, the name comes from the Aramaic, Layla which means of the night. It seems Samson had a thing for ladies of the night, doesn't it? And Samson's love for Delilah figuratively blinded him to the danger he's getting himself into and will result in him literally being blinded in a gruesome, gruesome way. This brings us to our third point, point number three. Satan Hides the hook with the bait. Satan hides the hook with the bait. Satan does not practice truth in advertising. He's quite the salesman. He talked Adam and Eve into exchanging the paradise of God for a piece of fruit. Your eyes shall be opened, he said, and you shall be as God's. Satan dangles the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. But he hides the hook, which is the shame and the wrath and the loss. We all know this because we all are sinners. We all were in a state of rebellion at one time and we sinned actively against God. And I pray for you that 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 time has passed in your life. But think back on it. The things that you were lured to and what they did to you and how you regretted it. And you kicked yourself for doing it, but you did it again and again and again. Satan's a master at this. He's had, since the creation, time to hone his skill. In luring and trapping the world, which is that you know it's that that special New Testament um, uh, idiom, meaning the con- those conjoined powers which operate together—the government, the economic system, and religious apparatus—that seek to dethrone God from the throne in our day-to-day lives in order to separate us eternally from him, the world offers pleasure and profit. But in exchange for what? A pinch of incense to the emperor God and we will let you conduct business. Step on this name of Christ. Step on it. And we will let you continue to farm and harvest instead of killing you. And we won't tell anyone you did this. Just between us. Doesn't mean anything. Just step on it. That's how the Japanese government under the emperor centuries and centuries ago stamped out Christianity by that simple act. The Puritan author Thomas Brooks He writes, many are miserable by loving hurtful things, but they are more miserable by having them. You may be attracted to something that is hurtful, but you're relatively safe until you have that thing. You're safe as far as how much damage it can do to you. And the Lord provides a remedy to us. Keep the greatest distance from sin and do not play with the golden bait Satan disguises to catch you. Don't even consider it. Samson should have stayed out of the Philistine territory and away from the houses of foreign women. There is no reason that we're told that he went to Gaza. He's not an emissary. He does not have to set up diplomatic relations with the Philistines. His job is to, to begin to drive them out of the territory, the land that God has given Israel. There's no reason for it. I can't tell you how many officers I commanded or I investigated that ended up losing their careers and many of them, their marriages, because they went places they should not have gone under the guise of their role as a law enforcement officer. But there was no good police reason to go where they did. It was an excuse to go there and get involved in something that destroyed their lives. They were attracted by what Satan had put on this hook, and a painful hook it was. Imagine Losing your livelihood. And in law enforcement, you lose your job. You get fired as a police officer. You're never working as a police officer again. You're done in that career. Not only that. The most heartbreaking thing was to see families destroyed by these actions. When we did these investigations... And there's times I had to speak to the officer's wives. And I knew it was going to destroy this young man's career. He, he was over, his, his, his life as a police officer was over. And I knew there's a good chance his marriage was over too. That's why these warnings are so important even to us, as followers of Christ, as people with transformed hearts, we still can be lured by these things, and we must take caution, we must beware, we must learn from what the Lord presents to us. And that's why I speak to you from my heart up here, that it is not just an ancient story. It's not something to make fun of. It's not ribald comedy where this guy is so woman crazy, he does this this wacky stuff. No, this is is stuff that could happen to you, brothers and sisters. God forbid that that it could. But the good news is that God never deserts us, even if we fall into sin. We must realize that. So, these Philistine lords used the golden bait for Delilah, of Delilah, as as a lure for Samson. Just like they did in chapter 14, where they used Samson's short time wife to get the answer to the wedding party riddle, remember? Now they use the charm of Delilah to obtain an answer to an even more important riddle. What is the secret? Of Samson's great strength. Not in order to win a wager, no. But so that they can overpower him, bind him, and torment him. The Philistine lords, notice, they they don't threaten Delilah like they did his wife in Timnah. No, Delilah is of the night. She's a hard case. Threats don't work. They make a business deal with her. They offer her an incredible amount of money. So here we got Delilah. She's a financially independent woman. Doesn't need this man. Doesn't really want this man. But she wants to undo his masculinity. I think she's a feminist. (laughs) I was right there. Can you argue with that? And here's the crazy thing is Delilah hides the Philistine plan right out in the open. She asks Samson to tell her a secret that every Philistine wants to know. Please tell me where you got your great strength, where it lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Subdue could be translated humiliated. So one could humiliate you. (laughs) Samson... Sometimes he's really smart. You know, he's really good with words. And, but sometimes it's like, I don't know, he gets around these women and it's like, Phew. you know, he's not thinking anymore. He never suspects, apparently, that her coy inquiry is the brutal plan laid bare. She could honestly say to him, don't blame me. I told you exactly what I had planned. You went along with it. But Samson said to her, verse 7, we're going to read 7 to 10. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. This is in her house. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Samson's answer to this question that we said about the about the bowstrings, there's a connection to what happened on Jawbone Hill. Jawbone Hill, he picks up the fresh jawbone of a he-ass, of a donkey, and uses as as a weapon. Now, as a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch anything connected to a dead thing. So he broke this vow, fighting the Philistines on Jawbone Hill. And what he tells Delilah here... Also, would be a violation of his vow, because bowstrings are made from sinew or from gut, and fresh means they just come from the carcass, and little did Samson know that the love of his life had hidden his enemies in her inner chamber they 're there all the time, all the while while he and Delilah play what he takes to be a game. I think that's what's going on here. Samson probably delights in snapping the bowstrings like they're nothing when she shouts The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He I think he's anticipating that she's really going to be impressed and swoon over her big strong man. This game looks like it could be fun, he's thinking. Instead, she's upset and Samson's undoubtedly puzzled. Gosh, what did I do? I was playing along with her. So he tries a new answer when they play the game again. Verses 11 and 12. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took two new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men laying in ambush were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So Samson tells her, Now... Hey, new ropes will do the trick. She shouts, Philistines! He snaps the rope, waits for her to gush over him. Again, she gets mad, accuses him of mocking her and lying. So he's thinking, maybe she wants something more intricate. Maybe this was just too simple. So Samson concocts a whopper of a scenario involving his hair and a weaver's loom. It's the craziest thing. It's hard to make sense of it when you read it. But here it is. Then Delilah said to Samson in verse 13, Until now, you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. You notice how she weaves him into a web. What does she sound like? Like a black widow, maybe. But Samson here, he's getting dangerously close to the truth, mentioning his hair, right? Because we know what's going on. But the loom is right there in the room, and the idea probably just popped into his head. What what do I come up with now? Oh, her, her weaver's loom. Okay, this is what, this is what I'm going to do. He falls asleep, tied to the loom by the seven locks of his hair, sawing logs until the middle of the night when suddenly Delilah shouts, Philistines! He jumps up and he destroys her loom in the process. Now she's even more angry with him probably. Verses 15 and 17. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarene. To God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah, having been thwarted three times, she ups her game here. If you really love me, you will tell me the truth. If you want my heart, you have to open up your heart to me. She plays the wounded lover. This is her most potent weapon. She has no bigger gun in her arsenal to bring into play. So she keeps firing this big gun at him day after day. She doesn't let up. She keeps after him. She doesn't let him have a moment of peace. And where there is no peace, there is no love. And thus Samson's soul, we are told, was vexed to death. This is a dark premonition of where all of this is leading. So when Samson does open his heart to this woman he loves, he reveals not only the secret of his strength, but his knowledge of his Nazarite vow. This is important to us. He is aware of the dedication that was made for him before he was born. Because his behavior is so off of the Nazarite vow, There's a question up till now. Does Samson know this stuff? It happened before he was born. Before he was conceived in the womb, he was dedicated as a Nazarite. He reveals to us and to this woman that yes, he knows full well he's a Nazarite. And the ban on cutting his hair was the only prohibition in this vow that applied strictly to him. Remember, his mother was part of the vow also. She could not drink the stuff and touch the stuff, but did nothing to do with her hair. Samson's long hair is the unmistakable mark that he'd been claimed by Yahweh from his mother's womb. To be a lifelong Nazarite, he belonged to the Lord above all else. Samson knows this, and that's Troubling. So the secret of his great strength lay in his hair because in his hair lay his Nazarite ship, his separation unto the Lord. And to shave it off would be to symbolically cancel his Nazarite ship, his connection to Yahweh, the Lord God, and would make him weak, like the text says, like every other man. The problem with Samson and his vow firstly is not so much that he willfully violates it, it's just he simply doesn't take it seriously. Samson is the type of guy where he doesn't take anything in his life seriously. He doesn't take his strength seriously, doesn't take the people around him seriously. Everything's a toy that he plays with, not a calling to be fulfilled. Secondly, in a highly significant moment, Samson refers to the one the one whom he is dedicated to by the generic designation of Elohim, God, rather than the covenantal name Yahweh, the Lord. This reveals very clearly a half-heartedness towards his vow and towards his relationship with Yahweh. Samson's life was to be a dedication of service to the Lord by beginning to drive out the Philistines from the promised land. But instead of opposing his people's opponents, he wants to join them. He wants to party with them. He wants to marry them. Let that be a warning to us. The biggest tragedy in Samson's life is when he bears his soul to this pagan woman when he told her all his heart to this dark-hearted daughter of the serpent. He's made a choice with ramifications he doesn't see. He's followed his heart instead of the Lord God. How often are you hearing that in this world? Follow your heart. To your own heart be true. Here's a prime example of someone who did exactly that. And it ends horribly. Horribly. Samson will pay a horrible price for following his heart. But we'll learn a lesson, as will everyone who hears this story. A lesson about who is actually sovereign over human life and actions. Even the actions and the lives of those who do not take the Lord God seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for for your love and your compassion and your care for us. Father, we give thanks for the warnings that you've given us. Father, I pray that your people follow your warnings. They heed your warnings. Father, I pray for their protection. Father, I pray for a hedge be, that be built around them, Father, to keep them from the schemes of the devil, from the snares of the devil. And, Father, give us discernment that we may see the golden bait that Satan dangles in front of us, so we may see it for what it is, a disguise over a deadly hook by which he wishes to trap us and to drag us to where he would have us go, Father. But, Father, we desire to go where you will have us go. We desire to follow our good shepherd, into whatever pasture he calls us into, Father. And we know, we have confidence that we will be protected by you in all things. Even though there may be physical danger, Father, we know eternally we are safe with you. We give thanks for that. Father, bless the rest of this day as we worship you. I pray for the evening service and the communion service, Father. Bless that time.